This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down Integris. Over the past two years on Business Breakdowns, we have covered many names across the semiconductor ecosystem. And Integris is another name to add to that list. Now, what exactly do they do? They are a supplier of advanced materials and process solutions for semiconductors. In layman's terms, they are developing chemicals and filters, which are applied to all of the different materials that go into a semiconductor, allow those materials to be more pure and operate at maximum capacity. You can imagine with the small size of chips, the smallest things that might interfere with the different materials that exist within the semiconductor will slow it down and make it inoperable. And that's where Integris comes into play. Now, we get into a lot of that discussion with our guest, Daniel Pilling from Sands Capital. He joins us to talk through the history of semiconductors in his own terms, what makes it such a fascinating industry to cover, not just from the Integra standpoint, but from the rest of the ecosystem as well, and what makes Integris unique as a small player in this overall huge universe dominated by major players. So please enjoy this breakdown of Integris. All right, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us here on Business Breakdowns. We have covered a few names in the semiconductor space, but it is important to rehash the importance of semiconductors each time we do it. So I thought we could start there. In your own words, what makes semiconductors such an interesting industry and such a key investment industry for you? Well, in my opinion, you can analyze pretty much any sector simply by looking at supply and demand, most companies function that way. So if you think about semiconductors like this, you can say, well, okay, let's think about supply. So supply has consolidated significantly about 15 to 20 years. You pick the company, NVIDIA, ASML, Integris, et cetera. All of those companies are really dominant. And without those companies, certain things just could not happen. The entire supply chain is very consolidated, effectively, and very oligopolistic. Now, on the demand side, I think the way you might want to think about it through is to say, what's the demand for compute? It's all about compute. So there's a great academic paper that talks about how much compute grows every year in terms of us humans requiring more, and it's about 50%. Now, I can make a very simple argument to say that over the next 5, 10 years, it probably accelerates. Why? Because we have all of a sudden AI, which applies to everybody, every company, not just humans. We still have PCs, smartphones, smartphones are still growing. We probably have self-driving cars, et cetera, et cetera. So the need for compute is probably accelerating. And then if you combine those two factors together, you say, well, okay, so supply is very consolidated in a few fairly dominant companies. And then demand is accelerating. That's a beautiful picture for an industry because that means the dominant companies are able to monetize demand effectively. 
And then maybe one last thing about the demand, which I think is very unique. So the cost of semiconductors is going up on the leading edge because we're trying to shrink these transistors. And usually when the cost of something goes up, economics one-on-one, the demand goes down. But here it's very unique in a sense where the cost is actually going up, but the use case is becoming so much better that we are actually willing to pay more for it. So despite costs going up, demand is accelerating. And maybe a great example might be if all of a sudden you have a self-driving car and you save one hour a day, people are willing to spend a lot of money on that despite the chip cost. So to me, that's a very intriguing industry set up effectively for the next five, 10 years. And it equally was over the past 10 years. Absolutely. The world certainly operates on semiconductors and everything that they power. Getting into Integris and where they fit into the overall ecosystem. Again, we've covered AMD, we've covered ASML, we've covered someone like Cadence. So very different angles. I think Integris, based on my research, is even more unique than those in terms of where they straddle the line between being a direct semiconductor business versus in the chemicals world somewhere. So maybe you could just start with an introduction in terms of what Integris actually does, what they produce, and how that fits into the ecosystem. You can think about semis in simplistic terms, like a multi-tiered pyramid of sorts. At the bottom, you have the semi-capex players. And Integris is part of that. They have the guys building the equipment. And then you have companies providing materials. Now, interestingly enough, the equipment space is much bigger in terms of market cap because most materials companies, they're actually part of big conglomerates. And so you don't see the semi part. Integris is the only one. And this stuff then gets bought by the foundries. And then you have the chip makers on top of it, the NVIDIAs and AMDs of the world. And you mentioned AMD. Integris is right at the bottom. And the intriguing thing about being at the bottom is that effectively, no matter what Moore's Law brings out, so whether it's the PC, smartphone, and now we have AI, the companies at the bottom really benefit because that means you need more semi-capex on the one side, but you also need way more chemicals and filtrations to manufacture these ships. So that's the position of Integris within the industry. Chemicals that are involved in the chips, what do the chemicals actually do? Where do they fit into the semiconductor, whether it's production process or what's their actual function for a chip? So I would highlight actually two segments here of theirs, Alex. So they do the chemicals and then they also have these filters and both are actually required. And maybe to provide sort of an example, let's start on the chemical side. So a big trend in chip manufacturing is that we went from planar architectures to 3D architectures. That's a natural step because the silicon footprint is limited. We want more compute per die, which means you have to go from planar to 3D. And I tend to joke, usually imagine you go from a city like London or DC, which is fairly planar, to New York City, which is the most 3D city you can have. And this is exactly what happened here, both in memory and logic. And then what that means for a chemical provider like Integra is actually fairly straightforward because Imagine you're the cement provider. Yeah, You have one cement provider in London and one in Manhattan. The guys in Manhattan are going to sell way more cement because of the city is 3D. So effectively, the same thing is happening here. So chips are continuously going 3D, which means you need more chemicals. And then there's something you can measure. There's something with process steps. So there's hundreds and hundreds of process steps to manufacture these chips. And each generation has usually more process steps and each process step requires a certain number of chemicals. 
can also briefly mention the filtration side of it because it actually is quite similar. Yeah? So as you go 3D, you have more process steps, which means, again, you need more chemicals, and each chemicals need to be filtered for contaminants. And these are really, really high-quality filters. So Integris talks about the filter being 99.999, so nine nines behind the decimal in terms of being able to filter out contaminants. And then, as you probably know, Moore's Law is getting more complicated. The transistor is getting smaller, so you really have to get rid of the contaminants. So that means the filters are getting more important. So you have two things here. Yeah? You have more process steps, driving more chemicals, and all these chemicals need to be filtered all the time. And both of the segments are effectively growth areas because of that. That makes a lot of sense. Now, just going back in history in terms of chemicals' importance into semiconductors, has this been the case all along where there's been a need for chemicals and filtration systems involved with semiconductors? And has that changed at all? Obviously, there's more demand to the extent that you are going 3D on a per-chip basis. But I'm just curious, has there been any change over the history which resulted in inflection and a demand for this chemicals as it relates to anything technological that changed with chip making and what's happened over the years? You always needed chemicals on filters, always, because they're sort of the building blocks to either etch or deposit stuff onto the silicon wafer. And same, you always needed to filter them. But I think what happened maybe around 2016, there was a big change in terms of the intensity of both chemicals and filters. And so during that moment in time, all of a sudden, the number of process steps to develop these chips started accelerating, which then meant that your cost per wafer went up significantly. And ballpark numbers here, I think today, the wafer cost at Taiwan Semi on the leading edge is about $30,000 per wafer. And it used to be three to $5,000 ballpark, yeah? like depending on the time frame. And a decent chunk of that is basically more process steps, more chemicals, and more filtration. And then if we boil it down to Integris, there's the magic that happened ultimately is to say, they used to grow at the number of wafer growth. So the more wafers you have, the more stuff you need from them. That's still the case today. But on top of that, actually, they're outgrowing the wafer growth because you need more chemicals and more filters for each new leading edge node, which then if you put it into numbers, that means they used to grow 5% organically, which is the wafer growth, to I think now they can grow something like 8 to 12%, which is 4 to 6% of organic growth. And so in my opinion, the organic growth on top of that is going to accelerate. We can debate, but that's sort of what happens. So it's become definitely much more important. And when you think about the chemicals within a chip and what that represents as a percentage of the overall cost of a chip, or we can put it in wafer terms, however you like, how big of a piece of that and... If I'm hearing you, it might be such that the cost of the chip has gone up. So the cost of what Integris is providing is maybe the same percentage of the overall cost of the chip. But I'm just curious there how important or how large of a cost as a percentage of the overall cost is the chemical as part of semiconductors? If we think about the percentages, it's hard to get precise data, but it's maybe something like 1% to 2% of the total wafer cost is that. And you can deduce the numbers that can take Integris total revenue and divide it by total wafers, gets you to something like a couple hundred dollars. And then if you look at the past few years, maybe let's say seven, eight years, I think that intensity has at least doubled on the leading edge, if not more. And I think it's going to accelerate in the future too. 
ultimately, I think the cap intensity here grows similar-ish as the cap intensity grows for the semi-capex names, i.e. applied materials, LAMs, and ASMLs of the world. I think you could make a case that maybe it outgrows it a smidge, but I'm not sure that's the case, actually. But ultimately, I think it grows similarly as the other companies in terms of capex intensity. And then maybe lastly, I'd say if you talk to the fabs, the big manufacturers of these chips, let's say the cost is 1%. There have been cases in the past where there were issues with chemicals, at Taiwan Semi, for example, and that'll cost them hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And then if you compare and contrast the cost versus the potential risk, it's enormous. So the ability of Integris to get designed in is very unique in that sense. It's very hard to build that trust. It's very hard to get designed in. But once you're in, you're going to grow for many, many years. So it's a nice position to be in. If you're Taiwan Semi or one of the fabs, it's not really the cost that you're looking for. You're looking at quality, yield, and the ability to supply the stuff on an ongoing basis. If it's 1% to 2% of overall costs, you definitely want to air towards quality. And that will make a huge difference, especially with what you're dealing with here. The beginning of this conversation, you mentioned that their competitors are really business lines within broader conglomerates. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, one, the competitive landscape for Integris, and two, how this business came to be, why it doesn't sit under a conglomerate or a broader corporate umbrella and how they've been able to stay independent over the years. So just some backstory in terms of how they came to be and who they're operating against. If you look at the filtration side, there used to be maybe five players in that 20 years ago. Today, it's two. And to be clear, filtration today generates about 50% of EBIT. So it's the biggest segment. It's a duopoly market. The competitor is owned by Danaher, which is a healthcare company. And... It's called PAL. It mainly actually focuses on the healthcare space because you also need a lot of filtration there. And then maybe there you can also argue again, it's clearly a great company, great competitor, but the focus is not semis, the focus is healthcare. If you look market share wise, as we feel that Integris is the bigger player by a decent amount. And then if you look on the leading edge, the design in, Integris is by far the leading player. So, and then if you look at the chemical side, there the market shares vary. In some parts, they have 30% market shares. In some parts, they have 80%, 90% market share. Maybe on average, something like 40, 50. What happens here over time, though, is that they gain market share. And sorry, to be clear, the competitors here are sort of the BSFs of the world, DuPont, Dow. There's a bunch of Japanese chemical companies. And for all of them, semiconductors is a tiny fraction of the total. Tiny. And then there's three ramifications for that, for Integris. One, they should gain market share over time, mainly because they are the only ones that focus on semi-chemicals, and they're the only ones that provide the total package of all chemicals, as well as the filters and some handling equipment. Nobody else does that. And then secondly, which really amazed me, I go to a lot of like industry conferences. I think it's very unique to semis. So this is the only industry that I've seen where you have PhD students present, and it's literally 15% of all presentations. And they're treated like gods or something. They're treated like, wow, we want to hire you. And it's incredible. So there's a lot of talent and these talents can choose where they're going. If that talent has, if you're a material scientist PhD, you have a choice and you want to do your life's work, you're much more likely to go to Integris because that's what they do versus going to a broader chemical 
company. And then on top of that, your PhD advisor probably has roots within Integris as well. So over time, they should grind out more market sharing chemicals as well. I think that describes quite well why I think in our opinion, the market share will go up, A, and B, they're already in a pretty good position today in terms of market shares and competition. Yeah, I think the next natural question is why they've been able to remain independent, what the origin story is here, and how they've gotten to this position that they're in today. Integris, the company itself, started in 1966 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in a suburb. The people starting this company had a background in plastic injection molding, and which then led them or enabled them to build these wafer cassettes that were made out of Teflon, amongst other commodities. And that then enabled them over time to grow a significant market share in the handling of wafers. And then around 2000, that business IPO'd under the name Integris. And in 2005, the second big thing happened for them. They merged with a company called Micropolis, which was a spin-out out of Millipore. And Millipore, you may know this, is a filtration company that was started in the 50s. And they focused on filtrations across the board, water, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And then they spun out the semiconductor filtration piece, which then merged with Integris. So basically, at that moment in time, you had materials handling, you had filtration, and then in 2014, they've added the chemicals piece via an acquisition called ATMI. Then you had all three together. When you look at the company, the predecessor in Minneapolis, the founder of the company gave an interview about 25 years ago, and he was talking about a family type of culture in a cyclical industry which is actually quite hard because when the cycle goes against you, you either have lower margins or you have to let people go. And hopefully you don't have to let people go. And if you don't, you have a really interesting culture where people really care. I think that percolated down into Integris. And then secondly, the current CEO came from Millipore, the filtration business, has been the CEO since 2012. And I think he realized that there's nothing like Integris out there that focuses just on semis, and this material side. And you also realize that there should be a flywheel effect of by combining chemicals, materials handling, and filters. And over time, you should drive significant synergies because they all work together. And I think that's why if you have this independent champion today now, and I hope it stays independent, I think it's some of the background, but I think it's also the CEO who's recognized he could do that. And he's been doing that for 11 years now. And can you talk a little bit about the customer base and the sales process for what they're doing? How much overlap is there in terms of the segments and the sale that's being made? What does that even look like on a year-to-year basis in terms of who's buying and maybe just identifying who the buyers actually are from a customer perspective if they have major exposure to particular players in the ecosystem? Let me do the second part first, and then i get back to the first part of your question. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah? So biggest customers about 50 to 60% of revenue are the big foundries and fabs. So Taiwan Semi, Samsung, Intel, there's a bunch of memory players like Micron, SK Hynix. There's a bunch of smaller analog fabs, text instruments, et cetera, et cetera. And then the rest of it is more like OEM type of chemical companies and distributors. Yeah? And all of those need to filter the chemicals as they ship them. All of us might also have to buy some sort of chemicals for themselves for their own product. So it's that type of mix shift, yeah. And and I think to your first part, 
I think the design and process is really intriguing. You can define the semiconductor industry as a three-legged stool, and there's three legs to it. I think you've done a few podcasts on some of the legs. One is the EDA guys, Cadence and Synopsis. The other is the Foundry guys, Taiwan Semi. And then the third leg is usually described as a semi-capex names, but actually includes the material name too. And all of those have to work together. So when LAM comes up with a new chamber, they will have a deep, deep, deep relationship with Integris for years to design both the filters and the chemicals within that chamber. Then LAM has to talk to Cadence, which then designs the stuff into their EDA tools, and obviously to Taiwan Semi, which then actually sort of runs the process. And the reason why I mentioned all of this, Integris gets designed in years in advance. It's a very, very R&D heavy process over their entirety of their business. And in my sense, this design and stuff has accelerated for them because, again, they provide everything. And they're just as integral part as anybody else on a three-legged stool. So it's hard to get into that stool. <laughs> but once you're in it, it's really nice. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a certain stickiness that's related to that. When you're involved there, does that mean for that chip series, whatever that vintage is, that you are then the partner of choice until basically it's extinct and you move on to the next series? Is that the right way to frame it just in terms of the stickiness of that business? Absolutely. So once you're designed in at a node, you're designed in because most likely you will have created a special type of filter. You may have created a special type of chemical just for that process, which then works really well with the equipment, which then works really well with both Taiwan Semi and Cadence. So once you're designed in, you're done. Now, the second step is then for the new node business, you have a very unique advantage. You have a lot of data in terms of how did my filters react on the previous node? How did my chemicals react on the previous node? And what does that mean for the 10-year roadmap that Taiwan Semi talks about? What do I need to tweak? How do I need to talk to LAM, ASML, AMAT, et cetera, et cetera? Because very likely you're going to gain market share and gain more design wins on top of that versus previous history. Now, obviously, the key risk here is that if you make a big mistake, if you can't supply, if your big customers don't start trusting you, you have a real problem. But that would be an execution issue. But on a standalone basis, in terms of your competitive mode and in terms of your ability to gain share and to stay where you are, it's actually really a nice position. And over their history, have they had any execution issues or events which have resulted in big drop-offs beyond just traditional cyclicality? Luckily, no. I would argue they've done well over time in terms of not having these issues. The issue I mentioned before was actually a Japanese supplier of some commodity materials that were contaminated and delivered to Taiwan Semi. And if you look at their cyclicality over time, it's been mainly driven by wafer growth rather than having issues to execute. On that cyclicality, semiconductor business historically was a very cyclical business, which fell into the traditional capital returns, capital framework in terms of seeing that CapEx come in, that supply, seeing the resulting demand adjustments. How have they fared relative to the rest of the industry? Are they any more or less cyclical than the rest of the market? There is a perception in the market and in general that Integris is less cyclical than average if you think about the semi-CapEx materials. I'll elaborate on that. There's pros and cons here. Truly, I mean, it's a consumables business. And so basically, whenever you manufacture a chip, 
you're going to consume materials from Integris. And that, on average at least, over long periods of time, means that it's a bit less cyclical than maybe semi-CAPEX names. Maybe to take a number, if you look at 2009, I think the average semi-CAPEX company revenue was maybe down 50%. Integris was down 30%, so slightly better. It's still pretty cyclical, but slightly better. What I would say, though, is that actually every 10 years or so, they do exhibit above average cyclicality, at least if you look at broader companies. And that happened this year, it happened in 2009, and it happened in 2001. And the reason for that is basically have a destock event. The utilization at the fabs goes down, memory prices may go down, and then you have a year of less wafer output. And that's the key driver of cyclicality. And that seems to happen every 10 years in a big fashion. And it happened this year, it happened 15 years ago, and then it happened in 2001, but it doesn't happen that often. Whereas maybe on the semi-capex side, I think the cycles are more like maybe every three years or so, three, four years, something like that. And then as it relates to their own pricing power, we'll start to get into the financial model a bit here. They are operating with major players, extremely large businesses. They are involved in that design phase. But how do they defend themselves just in terms of getting pricing power, maintaining some margin profile? Talk a little bit about that historically, how they've been able to trend when obviously some of their customers have a lot of power in these relationships. So how has that fared for them as a business? Industry-wide, what I really like about semiconductors is that what you enable is so valuable that actually many companies have rising gross margins. Uh, Taiwan Semi, NVIDIA, ASML, LAM, they all seem to benefit, although it's ultimately oligopoly on top of oligopoly on top of oligopoly. But somehow, they all seem to benefit. Yeah, it's because we just keep buying iPhones and loading up AI chatbots. The other end of the spectrum is what's going up in price, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's right, actually. And I agree. And so maybe if we then hone in on Integris, they've done decently well. I mean, I wouldn't say that they have necessarily the ability to raise prices, but I do think that they have the ability to stay twofold. One, to get a return on the R&D, and two, to keep price at least stable when the process steps go up. And that's all you want. Like, so when process steps go up, they should benefit from that. And that has happened over time, and you can see this in their gross margin, which is sort of around 45%. Been that for quite some time. Yeah? Now then if you go a step deeper down on the P&L, and that happens across the space too, it's actually quite beautiful. We literally can look at it over 20-year periods, and the very simple conclusion is the bigger the company and semi-capex or semi-suppliers and materials, the bigger the EBIT margin. And why? Because you have both SG&A leverage and sometimes a bit of R&D leverage, less so. And for them, that's been true as well. And the EBIT margin went from close to 20 to maybe 26, 27% in the last peak. I think there's a good chance it goes above 30. And maybe gross margins trail up a little bit too, but the crux here is SG&A leverage as you're selling more product, the same person is selling more stuff, more chemicals, more filters, whatever it might be. And then if you look at it from a free cash flow to revenue perspective too, that works as well because you actually don't have to invest that much more CapEx. Your margins are going up. So your free cash flow to revenue used to be maybe 10% 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Now it's closer to 20. Think it probably get even higher over time. So that's really helpful too. So you will have rising margins, but it's not a function of necessarily pricing per se. That makes sense. Yeah. Operating leverage within the business. You mentioned before filtration is about 50% 
of operating income. How does that compare? Is it just chemicals that are the other side of the business? Is there anything else that goes into it? And are the margin profiles different between the different segments? So filtration is maybe the crown jewel of the business, if one might say so. Filtration has about 40% EBIT margins. And then there's chemicals, which is about 30% of total EBIT there and has 20% EBIT margins. And then there's something called materials handling, which is actually the initial Integris from 1966. And basically the way you want to envisage this is these cassettes. And when you manufacture chips, you have these wafers and they need to go around the fab. And then you put them into these cassettes and they manufacture these cassettes. And actually they have 80, 90% market share in those. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there too. But maybe if I put chemicals and handling into one bucket and filtration into the other, filtration is 40% EBIT margin. Chemicals and handling is something like 20, 20% plus. So filtration also outgrows everything else. And I think the reason here is the market share on average is higher in filtration. There's only two players. I think R&D intensity is probably rising faster there because the contamination is becoming more of a big deal as you try to go to five, three, two nanometer, whatever it might be. But ultimately, though, the chemicals on the handling side will gain in market share over time as well, mainly due to the flywheel of them all working together. You mentioned a little bit there in terms of R&D, CapEx spend. Is that just a steady state percentage of revenues, whatever framework you might use in terms of thinking about that on a run rate basis? Or does it spike up during certain periods of time, how much visibility do you have in terms of what that R&D budget and CapEx budget look like from year to year or from phase to phase? R&D actually has been pretty steady as a percentage of sales, something like 8% or so. Over a long period of time, I don't think that changes much. If anything, I would prefer that to go up rather than down, but we'll see. Why is that? Well, rising R&D intensity should help them gain more share Maybe if I take a step back, if you look at this space in general, and you can apply the laws of biology, of physics of sorts to semis, and and you can say, well, naturally, as R&D intensity goes up, the industry has to whittle down to fewer players. If you're ASML, you can't have two ASMLs because the cyclical industry, they would both have ginormous R&D budgets. And that doesn't work in a cyclical industry because at some point, both would be a little bit in trouble because of the high R&D. So you only have one ASML. Now, Integris is a bit earlier in that journey. So for me, the more R&D intensive it is over time, frankly, the better, because that means that nobody else is going to follow it and their market share rises to become more dominant, more growth, and it'll get even better. So that's how I think about it. Yeah, it's a unique barrier to entry in some ways where the capital intensity can mean something. It is funny how that works sometimes where you have these beautiful businesses like software where they can be incredible with zero incremental cost for the additional dollar of revenue. But the barriers to entry are a little bit different than if you have a large physical footprint, a logistics platform, something like this, which is very intensive. ASML is a great, great example. In a different form of capital allocation, M&A seems like it is part of the DNA here. Some large acquisitions. I think I was reading that leverage as a result of acquisitions has ticked up. How do they think about that as being a key piece of the story? Obviously, it was historically, but looking into the future, how much does M&A play a role in terms of what they're doing? So it's been a very acquisitive business. They've done a very large transaction about 18 months ago. And it was CMC materials and maybe timing wasn't so great, peak of the cycle. But on the flip side, 
I think they wanted to do that transaction for about a decade now or longer. CMC materials, so the bulk of the business is something called slurries, which are required to polish wafers after etching and deposition. And CMC has about 70 plus percent market share in that. The other player is DuPont. It's very, very dominant. And it's actually a great addition to their chemicals profile because you have etching, deposition, you have slurries now, which is polishing. It helps in terms of selling a suite. On the flip side, that company never wanted to sell. <laughs> so that is the timing of it. Now, that also led to the leverage that you mentioned. So leverage is about, I'm guessing about three and a half net debt EBITDA, maybe something like that is towards the year end. But it should deliver rather quickly. If you look at it over a five-year perspective, the look at the free cash flow to revenue, it should probably fall below that at that moment in time. Now, that does open up opportunities to buy more. I mean, within materials and chemicals, there are a lot of smaller companies that do some sort of niche type of thing. They're leading in that, and you can tuck them in. I think Integris will benefit from that for a long time for a few reasons. They're the only ones doing this. They have the suite. The smaller guys, sometimes family owns, you can tuck them in. But I think it's going to be an important part. But on the flip side, over the next three years, I don't think much will happen simply because they have to delever for some time. Have they ever been speculated as a potential target acquisition for a larger player? How much is that part of the investment thesis, if at all? And how interesting would they be if they're a potential acquirer? Not that I'm aware of. At least I've never seen that. And I've been following them for 10 years plus. But never say never. In my opinion, I'd rather not them being acquired because if I look at the long term here, and if I just try to model the company out five, six, seven years, I think the valuation is really attractive. We'll see what that means for returns. And I'm not sure you would get that from an acquirer today. So when you do think about the future, you have some growth rate, organic revenue growth on top of maybe intensification of demand for their product with additional needs on a per unit basis. So let's say that's that mid to high single digits in terms of top line growth. Margin expansion is something that just based on operating leverage you're expecting to get. Is there anything else that goes into the bull case beyond those two things playing together that makes you particularly enthusiastic about the name? So I think with Integris, generally in investing, you want to see how much conviction can one have based on two things, the research you do, hopefully deep dive research, and maybe also the past. And then if you look at Integris, actually, you can make a few assumptions that are both rooted in research and the past. So maybe I'll, if I'll take the past. So wafer growth has been 5% for 30 years, ballpark. Why? Because we need more chips. Pretty simple. Very hard to argue against that given all the trends, AI, IoT, self-driving cars, whatever it might be, metaverse, it's going to grow. So you're going to have more wafers. And then secondly, physics is physics. So if we want to scale Moore's law, you're going to need more chemicals and filters. There's no way about that. So the top line then ultimately is maybe that 5% of wafer growth and the outgrowth. And I think the outgrowth is somewhere between 5 6 7%. I mean, who knows? Maybe you grow 10 11 12% over time with very high conviction. And then you can go down on the margin side, similar here, based off history, based off all the other companies, very hard to argue for them not to have margin leverage. And then three, given the leverage of the business today, 
the timing of the transaction wasn't so great and the timing of the debt wasn't so great either. So some of the debt is pretty high yielding. As you pay that down, you have a significant impact on interest costs coming down over time, which significantly helps you to go EPS to ballpark. I think there's a good case to be made that an EPS growth here can be something like a three, four X over the next five, seven years, whatever the time frame. who knows when the recessions and all. And that's those three factors combined. Although I think one can have high conviction in that type of growth. When it comes to competition that exists beyond what we've referenced in terms of some of the other players that are doing exactly what they're doing, other threats of technology as it relates to being able to do what Integris is doing, but with a different form of technology that's either not traditional chemical or filtration. There's always the obsolescence risk when it comes to these things, and it's very hard to predict those. But I'm just curious if that's something that ever comes into your thought process as it relates to what they're doing and how they're doing it. We think about this a lot. I'll give you a simple answer first, and maybe I'll dive into a bit more detail. So the simple answer is, I think for as long as we're in the semiconductor paradigm, it's very hard not to use chemicals and filters to do what you're doing. And it's not just Integris. All the semi-capex players, LAM, ASML, applied materials, they're all going down the same path. So is Cadence, so is Taiwan Semi. And we have a 10 to 15 year roadmap to do that for a long time. So from that perspective, it's very hard to see that getting disintermediated. If we drill a bit into the detail, I think if the semiconductor paradigm changes though, that will be a problem for Integris and for everyone else. And then you can say, well, okay, we can look at quantum computing, we can look at DNA computing, and maybe there's other stuff too, analog computing, I don't know. But my sense is that for all of those, we're probably decently far away from anything big happening. Maybe quantum computing is definitely getting more interesting. DNA computing, the problem is the input-output. As a DNA computing is basically we have four states in our DNA, which is really elegant, I suppose, as a computing mechanism. So the input-output is a problem, though it's too slow. And analog computing hasn't really scaled. I mean, it's equally far away. But that would be a risk factor. And I think none of those are going to happen anytime soon. It feels like it, at least. That makes sense. So beyond execution risk, which is always high here, it's a very important piece of the overall puzzle. What are the other things that you identify as risks in terms of this story executing and what you think about most as it relates to the business? Maybe a few things. There's obviously always the risk of a recession, and that would be bad for Integris and the entire industry. Now, I have no idea whether that happens or not, so I can't tell you, (laughs) but it's something one may want to think about. The second thing that I think at least we spend much, much, much more time on is the question of, so if the cost for these wafers is going up so much, are we going to hit a point at some point in time where it just gets too expensive? For example, is the iPhone price really going to go up that much more? And if it doesn't, why would Apple continue to pay higher prices for each node? That's a big question. And that's very important for them because the entire case that we constructed here is based on two things, wafer growth and rising sophistication on the Moore's Law side, so to speak. I think I have an answer for that, that at least we believe in. And we sort of briefly discussed that too is that the use case is outgrowing the cost. And then maybe if we take it back to Apple, for example, the reason why Apple is the biggest market cap in the world is actually really straightforward. 
it's ultimately geared in Moore's law and what Moore's law allowed the phone to become. 10 years ago, the biggest use case you could do in the app store, or maybe 12 years ago, was ringtones. Now it's 3D games, you can watch HD, whatever you want. And Apple became the biggest company in the world. So as long as Apple is willing to pay for those chips, and I think they will because the servicing business is their biggest stock driver for them, I think that we're good on that side. And I can make a similar argument for AI, the AI use case, how valuable it is, et cetera, et cetera. But that is, in my opinion, the biggest question for Integris. That's the biggest question for all of semiconductors. Is the use case valuable enough to pay the cost? And in my opinion, the answer is yes, it has been for a long time. But that's something I think one needs to think about constantly. If we were to go from massive growth and leading edge to maybe moderate growth or flatline in leading edge and move back towards lagging edge technology chips. I don't know what the exact phrasing is for the industry. I mean, how much of an impact would that have on this business if it was simply a move down or there was less demand for the advanced technology that's been created? As crazy as that might seem, as I say it out loud, in that scenario, what happens to Integris? Anything can happen. I think what basically would happen is that the outgrowth that we discussed would go away. So you'd still probably have wafer growth, i.e. that 5%. But the other 5 6 7%, whatever the number might be, would naturally go away because you're not scaling chips anymore. Now, I think actually there's a way of monitoring this. There's a couple of iMac in Belgium and they give you the roadmap. And I think when you look at that, the one thing that's going to happen before that is that probably you're going to start stacking chips on top of each other. You can't really do it today because of the heat dissipation issue. But that's when you know. That's when you're maybe done shrinking the transistor. We're going to start scaling them. But during that moment in time, you're going to have a massive growth in compute power in these chips. It's probably going to last 5, 10 years. And then maybe at some point we stop stacking and that's when it slows down. I think we're far away from that. But I think that's one way of maybe tracking that. Your earlier point, just in terms of Integris not being as well known in the industry, talking about how the stock is actually trading. I am just curious, what is your methodology for valuing a business like this and comparing it to its peer group? There are multiples that you use, ranges that you think about. How do you go about that part of the investment process? And how does it relate to Integris? I mean, I think Integris falls between different sort of areas of expertise. I think on the sell side, that maybe covered more by chemicals analysts, which is just cool, but maybe they might have on average less knowledge on semiconductors. And then on the semiconductor side, it's a pretty small company, 13 billion market cap. So usually the focus is more on the bigger guys, much more visible, and you have more synergy effects in terms of learning a space. So it's less discovered, I think, which then, in my opinion, leads to following talking about the multiples. And I think I'm in a fortunate position because actually the multiples are really not too crazy, <laughs> which is some parts of the market trade at maybe higher valuations. Yeah? So if we model this company out five to seven years, and we use some of those metrics that we discussed before, the wafer growth and the outgrowth and all that stuff, I think Integris trades somewhere between eight to 10 times PE, maybe. Probably similar also on a free cash flow yield basis. And that moment in time, it's, I think, fair to use those types of multiples because the leverage will be low one times. And I'm not adding any growth from M&A, which I think could happen, maybe not as significant as in the past. Now, I'm not sure what multiple will trade on at that moment in time. At the peak, it traded on 40 times earnings in the past five years. 
It can also trade on 20 times earnings, but usually it should have a little bit of a premium because it's a consumables business. And so their cycles are every 10 years and not every three, four, five years, maybe. Again, I'm not sure what the multiple will be in that time, but I think there's a lot of valuation support effectively if I model that out on that type of basis. Certainly interesting. And certainly interesting when you have two different investor groups looking at this, when you have the chemicals investor base, in addition to anyone looking at businesses related to semiconductors, you get an interesting mix there. Any other risks that we haven't brought up or haven't mentioned when it comes to the story? The other potential risk, which is not insignificant, is they have a big exposure in Taiwan. They're one of a handful of US semi-suppliers that actually has a big manufacturing facility in Taiwan too, which is a positive, I suppose, right? You want to be close to one of your bigger customers. But obviously, if something were to happen in Taiwan, that would be a big negative for them, at least in the short run. Over time, the wafers would migrate elsewhere probably, but for a few years, that would be a headwind if something were to happen in Taiwan. So that's another risk one should be aware of. Well, this has been fascinating. It's a company we could probably talk about the weeds of the business and what's actually happening for another hour or so. But we wind down the conversations talking about lessons that you could take and apply elsewhere from this business. So what do you think the lessons are from Integris that you could use from an investment perspective elsewhere? I think there's a few. One, special companies create the opportunity for their employees to do their life's work. I think that's really important. I think all of us want to do something that means something to us. I think Integris, if you want to do that type of stuff, I think it's a place to be which also means so that you can attract really high quality people. Very important. I think the second aspect I would highlight is, and Integris is a bit earlier in that, is that systemizing your product tends to be really helpful. And what I mean by that is instead of selling a single SKU, selling a family of things and optimizing them for each other. Ultimately, that's what Apple has done by software hardware optimization. That's what NVIDIA has done, software hardware optimization. I think that's what Integris is doing just much, much, much earlier. So whenever you find something like that, I think it's really intriguing. And three, maybe not so much Integris oriented, but I think you want to focus on things that have structural growth that you can really hang your hat on. And I think Integris swims like in a nice pond effectively. <laughs> and that's from that perspective. But those things. Perhaps a river flowing in one direction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well said. Well, Daniel, this has been excellent. I learned a ton here and about another segment of that ecosystem, which is endlessly fascinating. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 